on this episode. So we go have a lunch at uh, Sherman's Deli in Palm Springs. And during the three hours that we're there, everybody in town stopped at our table and talked to him. And I was like, holy smokes, everybody knows this guy. Everybody knows. And he tells these great stories. We got done with the whole thing, and I felt like I'd actually only been with him for five minutes. So we end up getting up and walking out the door after lunch. And I looked at him, and I said, you know, I was going to fire you as my first act when I got here. Recorded live in the corner booth at the center of the Coachella Valley universe. This is Big Conversations, Little Bar. Now, your hosts, Patrick Evans and Randy Florence. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Big Conversations, Little Bar. This is our second season, which is remarkable that we got picked up. Uh, But since we don't get paid, I guess that made it a lot easier. And Um, you probably clearly didn't listen to season one, so thank you for being here. I listened to almost every episode and enjoyed almost every one of them. <laughs> I didn't mean you. I meant no, the listeners. Oh, you didn't mean me. My name is Patrick Evans, and I am the co-host of Big Conversations Little Bar, and we are coming to you taped live at Little Bar in Palm Desert, California, Skip Page's Little Bar, and my co-host is none other than the world-renowned mortgage broker, Randy Florence, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for the introduction. I was never a mortgage broker. That was actually one level below what I was. Oh, damn it. Now we need to start over. I was was already pretty low down the ladder. What was your official title? Uh, Let's see. By the time I ended, I was national builder manager. That's impressive. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'd have spent more time with you if I'd known that. Uh, Randy, I'm delighted to be back for our second season. I can't believe we get to do this again. (laughs) Well, I can't because, again, nobody's paying us, so we might as well just show up and do it. But the exciting part today for me is that our guest is a guy who's been here for every single one of these recordings. So he's not really a guest. He's the guy that facilitates this each and every time we do an episode. John McMullen, who's our engineer and producer and, and makes sure that we're up on all of the podcast platforms so people can listen, uh, which they've been doing at a surprising clip, honestly, given the two of us. 100%. John, thank you for all that you've done for the podcast thus far, and thanks for being a guest today. Thank you for letting me be involved. Letting you? Yeah. You have to be. <laughs> Neither well, one of us know what we're fun doing. for the three of us, though, to watch this thing climb. Its popularity has grown since we started, which is what we'd hoped. And we're having a good time with some really interesting people here. Well, and you've helped get us some really interesting guests. You were really chiefly responsible for getting us Gary Keith, uh, head of the McCallum board, because you had a relationship with him. And uh, I was able to drop a bucket, and I said, John McMullen's going to call you. And he knew immediately. He didn't even look twice. He goes, okay. And and what's funny is, is that that all began with it being Facebook friends. Really? Yeah, that's how we originally met. In fact, I was at a party up in Bighorn last November, and it was the first time we'd ever met. And it was funny because Gary and his partner, Barry, walked into the party, and just a couple of moments later, Gary walks up to me and he goes, you're my Facebook friend, John McMullen, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the partner, by the way, the partner Barry's Barry Manilow. What? We well, we, we don't it's Barry Manilow? Barry Manilow. Wow. Yeah, they're they're married. Um, no, that was very cool. And, and we've got Michael Childers coming up, who you have also helped us. I mean, I've known Michael for years. He, he's a 
fascinating guy, and he's going to be fun to sit down with. So he, thank you for all the help that you provide. Oh, you're welcome. In fact, Michael is um, one of my favorite people to actually talk to myself when I get the chance. And I get a chance a uh, little more than the average bear, but uh, that's because my significant other works for Mr. Childers. However, my original introduction to him was when I was working on another project that was a radio project here in Palm Springs. And right before that, I had produced a video for the people at Palm Springs Life that featured a bunch of his work. And they had run an article in the magazine and uh, had called me and asked me, could you do a video story for us as well to go along with that? So that was the first time I'd ever met him. And I was blown away being in his house and just looking at all these photographs on the wall of all these amazing people he had shot throughout his life. And, you know, and one thing just led to another. And he at one point called me and said, uh, I love the piece that you did for um, Palm Springs Life. Would you maybe consider thinking about working with us to produce a documentary about my work? And while that didn't come to be, you know, we've just been friendly ever since and and he's the caliber of people that we have worked so hard over the last several months to bring together on big conversations little bar because these are these really neat interesting dynamic people that live in this valley that you guys get the opportunity to talk to and and let other people feel the way i felt after that first day with michael well, you know, it, it's interesting how this podcast has evolved. We have, and they're both equally important, we have kind of categories of guests like we, we have guests who really made their reputations, names outside of the Valley, but reside here. Mm-hmm. And then we have people who have really influenced the Valley because they live here. And, and he's kind of, he's a crossover of those. He's, he's a combination of both of those worlds. Right. He was certainly a, a, a well-known photographer. And, and But then as he moved into the valley, he's done things like One Night Only. And, and so he's elevated uh, the cultural scene here in the Coachella Valley. But he's an amazing guy. You know, but, it's funny you say that because I think we could say <clears throat> similar things about John. Well, that's the thing about John. And that's why John is a guest today. And not, he is also still engineering. I mean, we still made him work, which is terrible. <laughs> well, you're going to be able to keep the job at least through this episode. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's, you're solid. We don't know what button to push. Solid for but, the but next I bring 35 that up minutes. Because, you know, I got to know John uh, originally through our um, work on the Coachella Valley Economic Partnership. Right. That's when we first met. You but both served on the board of that. We did. We yep. did. Uh, and John was very, very involved. He was, he was part of the iHub program over there. But what I discovered, when I first met you, you were the iHub radio guy. But there was so much more before iHub radio. So I know you originally got involved in radio as a, as a kid. Your uncles? Yeah, I have a, my dad's sister, her husband, uh, my Uncle Bill, they had owned a radio station in Anacortes, Washington, which is the kind of the gateway to the San Juan Islands uh, up in the northwest part of Washington State. What a beautiful place. And it's a big fishing community there. And so I would spend my summers uh, as a kid with my two cousins, one who's about 
uh, six months older than me and another one who's about ten months younger than I. And we would terrorize my aunt and uncle and command control of their radio station during the summer breaks. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, so... Um, by the time I was, I think, 12, I was working pretty steadily on uh, some summer breaks uh, at, at their radio station. Meanwhile, I had also been working with a friend of mine uh, in elementary and then in junior and then later in senior high school in running a, a student TV station that we had built, working with the video equipment and stuff that they had there at the time, which by today's comparisons are, you know, very ancient type stuff, but fortunately had really great instructors who really wanted to nurture our interest in in doing those kinds of things. And so by the time I was in high school, I was interning for Gene Autry's radio station in Seattle, uh, KVI, and I ended up leaving that when my boss there moved to Los Angeles and actually became the national program director for Gene Autry at his station there, KMPC, which many people in Southern California know well. And then uh, I ended up working on a project in my high school to bring an educational radio station, a, you know, a vocational station into the school district. Wow. And, and so that took up the better part of my my sophomore, my junior year, and then ended up for part of that year going and taking a uh, exchange program down in Tucson, Arizona for my second semester of my junior year in high school. When I came back the next year, the guy who had been my boss and mentor at KVI in Seattle, the one who went to work in LA, had come back to Seattle, had accepted a job with a company that had just bought a new FM station there. And that station would end up going on the air on uh, St. Patrick's Day of 1981, and I was the guy who pushed the first song and and was basically the youngest program director of a major market radio station in Seattle uh, at the age of 17. Wow. And that was Cube FM. And and so it wasn't yet Cube FM, originally called the Northwest New 93, but that opportunity through my senior year of high school was a great opportunity for me to learn how to build a FM commercial radio station in a major market from the ground up, helping my friend Michael O'Shea. That's crazy. So, you know, when you when you get to, and I started in television about the same time you you started in radio when I was seventeen years old, mm-hmm. and, and I was also doing a little radio on the side. I've always done. It just gets into your blood. Yep, it's hard to get away from because there's no environment. I find no other environment like a newsroom. I find no other environment like a radio station. Uh, especially, you, you've done talk radio, you've done music radio, you, you've kind of run the gamut. But man, when you're we're in your studio playing music and, and you're not stuck to a playlist and you're creating the playlist, mm-hmm. there's nothing like that. So, yeah. you know, for both of you guys, it, here, here I am, the fan of the, the podcast. Walking into the TV station, walking into your studio the first time that I did, I mean, as a as a lay person, that that was just so exciting. Does that mean do you, you have still sex a lot? F- What's that? As a lay person, <laughs> does that mean you have sex a lot? Is that what you're telling me? I used to. Okay. Um, <laughs> do you do you still get any any of that? Do I still what? Do you still get any of that? Do you still get that thrill from putting on the headphones? And yeah, of course. Um, more times than not, though, since I, you know, moved into spoken word radio years ago, it's every time I would put my headset on, 
it was kind of stage fright of sort because it was like you're going to be on in a moment and when you go on you have to actually sound smart you're not just back announcing records anymore whatever it is that you're talking about whatever point of view you're trying to get across whoever you're interviewing you need to do your best to not sound like a freaking idiot well you should have told me that before we started this podcast (laughs) that would have been valuable information well, one of the things that I learned very early on was that that my responsibility was just to do my best to get somebody to open up about themselves and, and what matters to them. And I've had more fun working on that end of the business. You know, Patrick started in, in television. That was where my passion originally was when I was in, you know, in junior and senior high school. And... My uncle was the one who persuaded me. No, 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 no. Radio sports. At. And I'm like, you're a fool. Yeah, that's you right. know, people are going back to horses. I even wanted to be like <laughs> behind the scenes. I wanted to be a producer, you know, and and that kind of thing, and or technical director. I liked the technology and all that, but then I was convinced uh, ultimately that there is a lot you can do in radio, you know, and. The more I got into it, the more I realized that I wanted to do spoken word types of projects. I love music, but but my passion was to be able to talk about things that I'm, I'm really passionate about. Unfortunately, one of the really great mentors I had was a guy named uh, Robert E. Lee Hardwick, who had been a legend in Seattle Morning Radio for many years, working most of that time for Mr. Autry. And Bob had some very tumultuous times with stations in Seattle towards the end of his career uh, because he had a way of getting in management's face. He always talked about those damn bean counters, you know, and... And And probably talked about them on the air on occasion. And on occasion he did, yeah. So what ended up happening, though, was uh, I was between gigs at one point, and I was with my dad driving down the freeway, and we were listening to... Uh, talk radio station in Seattle at the time that my dad listened to every day and the host came on and he it was clear he'd been crying and he said I have this very sad news to report and he reads a report from the Washington State Patrol that troopers had found on the side of the North Cascades Highway uh, this person that had been this huge huge person in my life in terms of, you know, being somebody who had mentored me, Robert Hardwick, who had taken his life with a gun and in a truck sitting alongside the freeway uh, after he had been fired from a job uh, like a week early. Jeez. And that just stopped me in my tracks. And I was like, is this what I should be doing? And I started hearing things about it. He felt like he was an, an old man in a young man's game. And he can't provide for his family and all that, which is obscene and, and wrong because he was so beloved in the Pacific Northwest that he could have gotten a job doing anything for anybody. You know, he was the guy you want to have as your spokesperson or something like that. And it sent me into a tailspin that caused me to go look at what else could I do if I didn't do what I'd been doing. Even though I was really still pretty young. I'd been working in this since I was 12 years old. And I'm like, what am I doing? And ultimately, it caused me to end up in a job where I jumped out of the field for a while. And I went to work in technology with uh, 
software company called Aldus, which was the people who started the desktop publishing revolution with a product called PageMaker. Yeah. And they eventually became uh, merged with Adobe Systems. And I was given at that point, a couple of years later, an opportunity as to whether I wanted to to stay with the company or to go my own way, you know, uh, because of the merger. And instead, what I did is I ended up going to work for a little startup company called Real Networks. At the time, it was called Progressive Networks. But Real Networks, of course, was the first company to develop streaming audio and video. And I was there when we were just going from Real Audio 1 to Real Audio 2. And, so uh, you were at the beginning of at the, the streaming. Very, very beginning. Yeah. And my job was to actually work with Fortune 500 companies and other media and entertainment companies to get them interested in the streaming thing. And I tried to tell... Which I'm sure everybody was dubious about because yeah, of it course. was new technology and nobody believed that was where it was going to go. And not only that, I went to the CEO, Rob Glazer, and I said, look, I can tell you right now, for somebody to have a 100 stream server where, where 100 people simultaneously could listen to somebody, you want $10,000 for that license. <laughs> I'm like, that is the most expensive brochure in the history <laughs> of anything. And... So, ultimately, even though I helped them build a lot of internal content, and I would eventually become their executive producer for that, and created some other content with them, I chose, based on a contract that I had with them, to be able to take things that I had created that they were not going to continue funding and move out and start my own startup company. Which was? Which was a company um, that eventually would be called Stellar Networks. And... Within that, the first brand that I had created was a, was a streaming live and on-demand content channel called GBC. And that was the first really international, nationwide, but international LGBTQ radio station. When that, was that? And that was back in 1990. Seven. That was way ahead yeah, of the time. Mar- March of 97, yeah. when I left Real, the first product I'd created at Real as part of their one of their other projects was an LGBT newscast and talk show. The, the newscast was daily and the talk show was once a week. And so it was building from that. But I didn't want it to just be the LGBT thing. I wanted to create other niche content channels. So I developed one called Athena Radio, which is uh, for women. And we were in the process of putting partnerships together with women.com. And with Seventeen Magazine, I was working on another project and for teenagers. And then I was working on another one for a Jewish American publication that was going to be targeted towards the Jewish community and, and so on. And the idea was to co- kind of cookie cutter these and create things and work with people who had the interest in wanting to put unique content out there using this new technology. But how important was it to you to give voice to marginalized communities that didn't have a voice? The most important. Because while I was working at that technology company, um, little John McMullen, who had never, ever wanted to be in any way, shape, or form involved in any sort of activism. I, I I had no real major interest in politics even though I loved spoken word and I really I didn't want to be the guy who ever rocked boats you know I wanted to get along with everyone and I was 
scared to death when one of the paralegals from Aldous's uh, legal department came to me and said, oh, we're starting this uh, LGBT employee group, and we'd like you to be involved. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and, and That they sounded terrible to you. <laughs> they eventually got me to go uh, maybe a couple of months later in the formation of this thing to participate in an event at Stanford University. And the problem was is I came back a different person. Uh, after doing that, I met, so. a, I met a couple of people. Uh, Elizabeth Birch at the time, uh, it was before she became the head of the human rights campaign in Washington, D.C. She was the chief litigation counsel for Apple Computer. And, uh, and another guy who was an activist who would eventually come to work for me, uh, a guy named Michelangelo Signorelli. And the two of them put on this workshop. And I, it was like a light went off in my head, and I got it. And I understood why some people were the way that they were in terms of being as upset as they were. But I still didn't like, like the in-your-face tactics. I still felt that you need to be able to have a real dialogue with people and win people over through, you know, they're realizing that you're just the same person I've always liked. But I, when I came back to Seattle after that weekend, I thought, God help the first 10 people who I talked to <laughs> this week. <laughs> You know, and, and you were ready. Yeah, I was ready, and and it wasn't like I wanted to be in their face. I just, I had a different perspective. I learned some things from some people that I'd never really had the ability to be involved with before, and it made me realize years later, as this technology was developed at Real, that there's an opportunity to take this and to democratize media for all sorts of people who have generally not had access or had a easy way of getting onto the air on radio or television or whatever. And so regardless of what your politics were or your hobbies were, etc., this was a, a new opportunity using this new technology, and I wanted to find a way to capitalize on that. So it, it, it was very, very new, and you were putting out kind of a mainstream message that hadn't been put out before. Yeah. How did that go? Uh, it was a slow, slow grow. I did started it while back? I was... No, surprisingly, I didn't. Hmm. But that because of the... Because I think of the personal politics of the people that I was working with at that time, Mr. Glazer, who was the CEO and founder of Real Networks, was a very progressive-oriented person, hence the original name for the company and yeah. so on. And, and he was totally behind it. In fact, he kind of started treating me like the teacher and he is the, as the student. But, you know, I just, staying at Real was not the right place for me. I realized that if I was going to help do this and show others how this could be used, it was better for me to be doing that out on my own than to be doing it as a guy who was working with a bunch of tech heads at Real. All right. I want to jump ahead just a little bit. Okay. But... I mean, you were doing all this work in, in, in technology, but also still in, in giving rise to voices and, and putting spoken word on the air. How did that translate to joining XM Radio? Serious. 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 That's right. Serious was the XM first. was a big part of that because what happened was when I started that company, Stellar Networks, and did the GBC thing, somebody who was with the original parent company to XM came to me and had read about what we were doing and had come to me and said, we would like to work with you and put your content in our 
radios. So I began working for several years with XM in developing the, the partnership to do that, not just for GVC, but also for Athena and so on. And unfortunately, what happened was that in 2001, there was a confluence of things that had happened. One was that XM's largest partner, General Motors, which was also its largest debt holder, said to uh, an executive at XM, you're not going to put gay radio in our cars. <laughs> and that was that. Wow. And As it, if gay people wouldn't drive right. a GM product. I mean, that's... I mean, it's remarkable to me yeah. how short-sighted well, that is. I only learned about it because one of <laughs> one of the program directors there actually got his hands on a copy of the letter the and, and shared it with me. And in order for me to see that, I had to agree to never, you know, bring it public like that. And so now Randy face. and I are going to get sued. Yeah, nice. basically. Okay. And but you know, it's it's been a couple of decades. So. You think they've forgotten? I don't no, I don't know. Not lawyers. Well, sorry. So what happened was then we went to try and, and keep the deal together by going to Sirius. And the people at Sirius told us, we'd love to do that. However, the guy who's the founder of our company and CEO at that time um, has already told us if we ever come back to him with one of these ideas like this again, he's going to fire us because of his religious beliefs. And so David Margulies, the, the founder of, of, uh, of Sirius Satellite Radio, was not going to let this happen. Meanwhile, my investors, of course, get hit twice because once by the decision by XM and right after that, within two weeks, was the 9-11 attacks mm-hmm. and the markets just went haywire. So I lost their support by the end of that year, by the end of 2001. And we had not gotten to profitability yet, so there was no way the company was going to continue to go on. Meanwhile, Mr. Margulies got fired by the board uh, because they were supposed to be first to market at Sirius, and it turned out that XM became first to market by about six months, and so the board at Sirius removed him, and they put in a new CEO who brought with him a person who happened to be the same person I had used as a consultant. And that person was overseeing programming and marketing for the new CEO. And he called me and he said, look, we're not going to do anything right this minute, but don't call me. I am going to call you when the time is right. You are going to be coming to New York and working with Sirius. And Walter Sabo kept his word. And I ended up showing up there on July 25th of 2002. And the rest was history. So ended up getting into Sirius Satellite Radio that way and began working on creating internal, unique channels for them and basing that off the success that we'd had at you Stellar. Know, it's, it's such a no-brainer. And I, mean, I realize we're dealing with decades of difference and, and, and when you look back at that time versus now, and it doesn't seem like it's that long ago, but it's 20-some years. Yep. But the idea of putting incredibly diverse programming on that platform only serves to spread the platform and encourage more people to subscribe. Yep. Uh, the idea that you would ice out an idea like ABC or Athena Radio and and further marginal I'm like a forward thinking CEO would look at that as I may not 
okay, I don't like it. I don't agree with it. But we could make some money on that. I mean, like, that just seems like such a dumb position. Well, in the early days, they weren't making a dime. Yeah, but I, even, I mean, even with the replacement CEO, I don't think that the people who brought me together with the company had clearly told the new CEO what the game plan was. Um, because <laughs> they just kept saying ABC. After I got, right. after I got G there. G was silent. Yeah. yeah. After I got G's silent. There, the, the idea of uh, doing the uh, LGBT station for them, which was the main reason that they wanted to bring me in, because they knew that I had already developed an audience of two and a half million people. With that, wow! They wanted to. They kept putting me into this. We're going to talk about that down the road. You know, they just kept pushing the ball further and further down. But what happened was they decided to put one sentence about something that they might be doing in the press release for the press conference they were going to have that next January at the CES show in Las Vegas. And they had one major member of the media that could not make it to Vegas for that week. And so they provided them the press release before that. And out of that entire press release, the one thing that that journalist clung to was that one line that says something about working on an LGBT station. And they had lots of big announcements that year. And all of a sudden, the PR department and others were coming to me, and they're like, "We have to meet with you right now. We need to we need to talk to you before we have this this press conference tomorrow." And I'm I'm like, "What's the sudden rush?" And they're like, "Because we have to be ready ready to release this thing this this spring now. It's out. It's out. It's out." And which so, is a metaphor. oh, yeah, to that, but until, kind of appropriate. It, it seems appropriate. I yeah. can tell you, the same guy who brought me in was responsible for doing the Howard Stern deal. Oh, when, wow. did, when did Howard Stern start serious? Or when did he start with them? He's uh, never been serious. <laughs> oh, oh, I know. <laughs> H- Howard would end up coming a couple of years after I was there. So let me ask you, as somebody who was early on in that, because there, yeah. there was a time when we all started to realize that satellite radio wasn't making any money, and it kind of looked like a shell game for the first couple of years. Would satellite radio have made it? This is how John made his living. It's yeah, I know. And now he's sitting here engineering a podcast at Little Bar. So this all seems appropriate. Would would satellite radio have made it if Howard Stern had not joined? There's a lot of people who would argue otherwise, and it could have made it, and it could have made it big much earlier. But the answer to that question, in my opinion, is no. Because he's still a huge part. I mean, he has two channels. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. Because I was involved with the people who helped put that deal together. I like to refer to it this way. The day that Howard signed on was the day that the company no longer became Cyrus and became Sirius. (laughs) Because people knew how to pronounce our name and they knew what the hell we were and all that. And, and I remember because when I started on the air with them in the early days, we had a total subscriber universe of 5,000 people. Wow. That across, was it? Across over 100 stations. Jeez. Across 24 hours a day. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to have like three listeners listening to me. <laughs> You know, on, on, on this channel called The Buzz, that which was the first one where I was doing this morning show. But we had a rapid rise. And well before Howard got there, a lot of people did a lot of things to help 
the guerrilla marketing, I think, that we needed to do with what we had. Unfortunately, we had a really bad marketing team that didn't understand, had not worked in subscription entertainment before. The and reason that they hired... It's, it's a whole different... Yeah. It's a whole different... And, of course, with the deal with GM, you got you, you got a radio in your car, and to get the full use out of it, you, you needed... And they gave you... In fact, originally when they were selling them, you got a, a six-month subscription. Yeah. Well, the second day on the job for me, my boss, my new boss, the senior vice president of programming, took me to dinner, and he said, so you might hear some news tomorrow that we're going bankrupt. <laughs> That's I'm, always great. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to describe it as a shell game. And I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at him, and I'm going... What are you talking about? I just moved to the most expensive city in America, and uh, my house is for sale in Seattle. I haven't even and, unpacked. And, you know, and oh my God, what am I into now? And and he said, "Look, here's what's going to happen: the company is going to cram down the current shareholders to six six percent or eight percent of the company, and if they don't take that deal, then." We're going to do a prepackaged bankruptcy, but the reason that they'll want to take the deal is because that keeps all of our car partners deal, deals in place and will not negate those contracts. Oh. And at the time, Sirius did have the majority of the car dealer arrangements because while XM had GM, GM we had Ford and Chrysler and yeah, the Chrysler various, Dodge and BMW, and so in all the related sub brands. And so uh, we were. The kind BMWs of, were all in German. <laughs> you only have the German stations. <laughs> but it was, you know. David Asselhoff. There was, so, there was so much I learned from that process working in a major publicly traded company. So, how long were you with the, the satellite radio? For about five years. Yeah. I came to Los Angeles uh, because there was an opportunity when one of the other people who worked for me. Uh, chose not to go because his dad was in failing health in New Jersey, and he was going to make the transition. And I wanted us to have somebody from the LGBT station that would also, even though I was in a management role, I also did a show three hours a night, you know, five days a week. And I wanted to get back to the West Coast ultimately. And because of all the stuff going on in New York at that time, with Howard having just announced that he was coming aboard, I was like, I just don't want to be in, in this mess. What I also wasn't thinking smart about at the time was out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. And, and you have, by the way, the highest salary in this unit. And eventually we're going to forget about you and forget about paying for you. <laughs> and, you know, and I, so I ended up in Los Angeles, which was part of the goal. But within a year and a half, I got the axe. And so I was out of there and it was time to start looking for a new paycheck. And that's how you ended up here in the desert. That's how I ended up here. And ultimately, the way you and I met, you were with, well, I guess it's now Alpha Media. Yeah, but it was Morris, Morris Communications at that time. And we had a little partnership. I'd do a little weather for you guys, but mm-hmm. you had Bill Feingold. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a funny story to tell you that most people in town don't know about Mr. Feingold because my first before I moved here from L.A., I listened to the station on an internet stream for about a month. And I would tune in and listen. Bill was doing this one-hour show every night. And I, for the life of me, could not figure out who is this guy and why is he on the radio. Yeah, this very nasally Jewish 
voice and it was definitely not that he was from some big market radio thing and just retiring out here and he was funny but he also had this habit of apologizing for everybody who was on his show at the time so I couldn't figure out the show. He'd tell you 43 things he's going to do that night, and he'd only get one of them done. <laughs> yes, he was all over the place. I love Bill. Yeah. He was all over the place. So I got here, and I went and had lunch with him because he wasn't there the day that I came and met everybody else. He was on vacation. So we go have a lunch at uh, Sherman's Deli in Palm Springs. And during the three hours that we're there, everybody in town stopped at our table and talked to him. And I was like, holy smokes, everybody knows this guy. Everybody knows And he tells these great stories. We got done with the whole thing, and I felt like I'd actually only been with him for five minutes. So we end up getting up and walking out the door after lunch. And I looked at him, and I said, you know, I was going to fire you as my first act when I got here. But I have to tell you, if you can do what you just did in that restaurant every night, I said, I'm going to make you a big star here. And you were going to do fantastic. So he was overjoyed, of course. And I mean, and my experience with him there was just so 180 degrees opposite of what it had been listening to his show at night. And I told him, I, you know, once we got going and, and started on, on the Bill Feingold show, I said, I'm going to make this show a three hour a night show. No more of this one-hour thing and all that. I said, people just get here and you're leaving. He was like, oh, my God, I'm not going to be able to handle that. <laughs> what am I going to fill it with? I said, all the stuff you tell people you're going to talk about, you never get <laughs> you're to. You're actually right. going to do it. And and so Patrick knows this because he was a guest many a time when we were off doing remote broadcasts throughout the week at various venues. Not only was I guest, I was a guest host. Yes. When Bill took vacation... I had to fill that three hours. Oh, man. And that was the most daunting thing. Uh, and it's the only time I've ever done spoken word talk radio. And really? I, and I sidekicked with Patrick. Really? Yeah. Yes, I did. In John fact, was I, my co-host. I just posted a picture. Is there a chance that this is an interview? <laughs> no. <laughs> You're bringing John in as the co-host? No, I'm the producer. Um, Maybe. Maybe. But. You're doing Okay. <laughs> I haven't said much. So, <laughs> Well, I ended up working with Bill on some stuff and, and helping him just learn some basic formatics and stuff. And he did so well that that next book after I got him to go to three hours a night, his first ratings book, he went from a one share in this market, one and a half share, to be fair to him. To a 34 share. Wow. Meaning that a third of all people listening to the radio at night here in the Coachella Valley were listening to his show. And he deserved it. He really did a great job. And, and for many years, he, he really owned the radio at night in this town. And the only thing was is it would become very difficult to help get his head back inside the office after... After that, Bill but, had a healthy ego before that happened. Yes, I I realized that. And and then his morning program, which I think you were instrumental in getting him to move to morning, which he did not want to do. I did, but it was it was the right move because that's that's the growth area. You know what he wanted? He wanted to do afternoon drive, and afternoon drive was not right for Bill. No, because afternoon drive is where you put the guy who's going to take the bullets and the arrows in their back for doing a lot of 
political things. And that's not where you want to put a guy like Bill who has this bigger-than-life personality and is fun to listen to. And He did take a few errors. He, he did, but but still, the idea was is that he was an excellent morning show. He was an excellent morning show. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Let me... Let me You've had an incredible career interviewing. I read a story where at 16, you were with Larry King. Mm-hmm. What was that all about? I'll tell you on a future episode. Okay. We'll listen to it at a future episode. Give me, if you were writing your own biography, and you had to pick one interview that you did in your career that was the most impactful, what would it be? Wow. Um, or most memorable. I'll tell you, um, I have so many memorable ones from different places, but since this is kind of an entertainment music-related-ish show, I'll tell you that the biggest surprise I ever had on my program with a guest and who I enjoyed almost more than anybody was with Tony Orlando, of all people. Really? Yeah. Did you do it in the morning? No, I did it in the afternoon. Oh, Tony Orlando and Dusk. Yeah. Not three times. <laughs> <laughs> I always preferred Dawn, both of them. <laughs> Uh, John. No, no, hang on, hang on. Tony Orlando, why? Just because he was such an incredibly kind person. Just a really kind person, and he was somebody that I related to from watching him when I was a kid on the CBS variety show that he did and things like that. I've met presidents and, you know, other national leaders. It's mesmerizing at times to meet some of those people. But there's just so many other really kind people that they're not the egos you would think that they necessarily are, and, and I love meeting them all the most. And I he met, was one of those. I met Tony Orlando when he did the Sinatra tournament a few years ago. Yeah. And he is exactly that. He's a gentleman. Yeah. He's kind, and he's uh, a, a very generous with his time. So I would as, describe as our guest you. the same way. Absolutely. Yeah. Once again, you've been listening to Big Conversations, Little Bar. We thank John McMullen, who is pulling double duty tonight, <laughs> producing the show and being our guest. And he's had an incredible career throughout the very machinations of terrestrial and satellite radio and, and balancing act in between and then really pioneering kind of the Internet version of radio, which has certainly helped our little podcast. Randy, my co-host, Randy Florence, thank you so much. Glad to be here again. John, thank you for everything. You've been a good friend and everything you've done. You've been a good friend to this podcast. Listen, Thanks, guys. I'll be welcome, everybody, week. to the end of our show. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with another episode of Big Conversations, Little Bar. Thank you for joining us for Big Conversations, Little Bar with Patrick Evans and Randy Florence. Hear our entire library of episodes from BigConversationsLittleBar.com or most major podcast portals. This podcast is a production of the Mutual Broadcasting System.